Well, this morning we're going to focus the attention of our study on verses 10 to 13. Uh, <clears throat> um, and you can turn there if you haven't yet. It's always good, as we say regularly, to follow along in the text. There are Bibles on the side table if you'd like one. Um, but we'll set the context for verses 10 to 13 in this way. Uh, the, the best beginnings to books almost always have an anticipatory element of some sort or another that leaves us wondering more about what's coming in the rest of the book. So the best stories always begin by, by hooking us, by grabbing our attention. And so you'll recognize this excerpt. This may be part of one of the best beginnings of any book ever. Here it is. The hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they had never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. I mean, it's the beginning of The Hobbit. What an outstanding start to a story. You have someone who never has adventures and never says anything unexpected, going to have adventures and say unexpected things all the way throughout. It hooks us right from the very beginning. We have to keep reading. But the point being in this is that the best beginnings to books so often have this anticipatory element that propels us into the rest of what is written because we want to find out what's coming. We need to find out what's coming after reading the beginning. And that anticipatory beginning certainly applies to the introduction of John's gospel. Uh, not because it's a fictional story like The Hobbit, far from it. We know John is, is determined to communicate truth on which the difference between life and eternal death for humanity hangs. John is in the business of giving us very critical truth. Uh, but the beginning of John's gospel does propel us into further truth that he's going to expound. John has this anticipatory element in that the first 18 verses or the prologue serve to drive us forward expectantly into the bigness of the truths that are going to be worked out as the gospel goes on in the dialogue and in the events that are recorded there. So take, for example, what we've seen already in these first verses about the eternality of Christ. So we've been told that, that Christ was before all beginnings. That makes us want to know more. And, and Jesus will make much more of that in John chapter 8, where the eternality of Christ comes to the very center of a dialogue about what it really means to be believing in Jesus and finding life in Him. And here, in John's first verses, that's anticipated. Just like other elements of John's gospel are, are consistently anticipated through these original verses. So, so we've, we've heard about the notion of witness with John the Baptist. Witness is going to be a huge theme in John's gospel. And light and darkness and the divinity of Jesus and, and Jesus' unity with God the Father. So there are all these enormous categories that we look forward to having uh, already been introduced to them in the very beginning of what John is telling us here. We look forward to understanding them more uh, in depth. We look forward to considering them more carefully and with, with critical nuance that John will give to us. So, so just like the best writing always does, John is captivating us by his, by his introduction. And the content that we have before us to study today is no different. In fact, in our section today, there's something uh, uniquely intriguing in the content that John's speaking about and that he's speaking to us about how Jesus was received. 
uh, when the light came into the darkness, or, or as John will say in the section that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, when, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, when the Lord Jesus came into the world, how did people respond to that? What was their reaction? How, 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 do, how do you respond to Jesus' coming? This is what John is really gift, getting after. How do I respond to Jesus' coming? Why do you and I respond the way we do? Why does our neighbor respond to Christ in the way that they do? This is something critical to consider for any reader of John's gospel because we know, we know from chapter 20 that John has one main priority for our response to Jesus. And that main priority that John has for us is that we would respond by believing, that we would respond by trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus and find in him the eternal life that he offers. So, so in our verses here, right from the very beginning, John is going to bring up this subject of responding to Christ's coming so that we can begin thinking well about it, so that we can begin having this category develop in our mind because nothing in the whole world matters as much as how we're going to respond to the fact that this one who is light, this one who is life, this one who is before all time and stands outside of all space, this one comes into the world in order to ultimately defeat the darkness, in order to bring us life. What does it mean to respond properly to Jesus? And so John anticipates our need to work this out in more detail as the gospel goes on. And he introduces us now to the subject of this, just so we're ready, just so we're prepared for the truth that lies ahead. How do people respond to the fact that Jesus has come into the world? And so that's what we're going to consider from verses 10 to 13 today. Uh, and as we look at this section, we do see that the first two responses to Jesus are anything but encouraging. Now, part, of, part of the reason we know that the, the gospel writers are giving us a true account of Jesus' life is a section like this where we have John who's clearly going to revere Christ, laud Christ and, and praise Him for His glories. But he also gives us a very honest picture of what's going on with Jesus. When he introduces us to Jesus, he doesn't start with the people who are first going to accept Him. He starts with those who reject Him. He begins down in the, in the darkness of what's going on here in terms of the world's response. And then even in terms of the Israelite people's response to Jesus, he starts in a place that's not very uh, encouraging at first, at least, but it is very honest. And then, of course, because of, of what's true about the gospel, because the gospel never leaves us in a hopeless place, he'll move to speak about those who do respond to Christ. There's always grace there, and, and, and we'll see how John works this out. So, in terms of responding to the coming of Christ, we'll start with verse 10. And, and we see in verse 10 that, that when Christ came, he was unrecognized. That's the first thing that John tells us. So, verse 10 reads, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Did not recognize him. Now, uh, we read that, and we're immediately struck by the fact that there's something that almost seems illogical here. So, so the Creator entered the creation, entered His creation, and He was not known by the creatures that He made. It seems like there's a disconnect that's being uh, communicated here. Something wrong is happening. Um, and, that, and that's, and that's uh, contrasting to what we might expect. But on, on the other hand, we understand this is what's true about Jesus when He first comes. The one who... All through whom all things were made, ultimately, is the one who enters the reality of his created order, and nobody, nobody gets him for who he really is. Now, now on the one hand, this could just seem like there was an, an oblivious problem going on in the world. 
Uh, John's communicating to us something like maybe they just didn't get Jesus and that was it. Um, but we know actually it is, it is quite a bit worse than that. Um, and this, and this I'll, I'll give you an illustration here. It's, it's, a, it's a weak illustration, but, but, but I think it, it helps to kind of put into perspective what John is saying here. Um, it just came to mind as I was studying the passage this week. Uh, but, but when Julia was in, in school still, I was working full-time at a motorcycle dealership. I've told you about that before. Uh, but it was part of the Power Auto Group. And uh, you see their license plate frames around still from time to time. They're, they're a little bigger, I suppose, south and, and west of us. But they are a large, a large auto group. And the owner of the group is, is a man named Jeff. He's a fairly unassuming-looking uh, man. And one day, Jeff walked into the Power Kia dealership in Salem after it had been open for about a year. And no one at the shop, except for the general manager, had ever met him before. So nobody knew, knew who he was. Uh, so here's the owner of the dealership, uh, the one, if you like, through whom the dealership came into its existence, if we can put it that way without being too irreverent. He came in, and no one recognized him. Uh, and then he proceeded to walk around some new cars in the showroom, as a customer would. And then he went out and walked around on the lot for about a half hour, looking at new cars. And there were seven sales guys on the floor at the time. No other customers were in the store. And not one of the sales guys came to, t to talk to Jeff while he was there. Car sales guys, not one of them came to talk to him. So after about a half hour of this, Jeff walks back into the store, swears a blue streak at all of them, fires all of them, and runs the whole shop for himself for two, by himself for two weeks. He's just done with them. Then he finally hires some other people, and, and things go on from there. And, and at first we might think that there was an oblivious problem going on with the sales staff. They just didn't know who he was. If they would have known, no doubt they all would have flocked and, and, and said something to him, right? But as it turned out, the trouble actually ran deeper, and that these guys, it, it wasn't just that they didn't recognize him. They just weren't hard workers, the, the folks he had there. They were sitting there when they should have been active. And, and again, in a, in a weak way, and I hope not in too irreverent of a way, that, that, that does illustrate something of what John is telling us here, where, where there is, where there is a, a lack of recognition, but it's actually something much more cosmically serious going on with Christ coming into the world and, them not, and the world not recognizing Jesus. Uh, because just even as we think about it, the originator of life, the sustainer of life, the, the redeemer of life comes into the world Lives that he made, and they, they didn't recognize him, they didn't know him, uh, but, but we realize there is much more than an oblivious problem going on, even in the way uh, John speaks to us about what's going on here, and, and that John gives us a clue uh, that, that something more than just your average lack of recognition is happening, and that he uses this term world three times. Uh, and, he, and he doesn't just repeat it, but, but he puts it at the beginning of each clause in the Greek text, just in this one verse. He repeats the word three times. He sticks it at the beginning of each clause, which is an ancient way of, of putting something in bold print or highlighting it for us. He puts this, this, this word world out in front. Um, and this is awkward in English. We kind of have to talk like Yoda to read it like John has it. But verse 10 more literally reads, the world he was in. You can hear Yoda saying it like that, right? But he was in the world, the world he was in, and the world was created through him, and the world did not recognize him. So John has this emphasis there on the world from the very beginning. And, and, and we know from last time in our studies that the term world in John's gospel is a technical term. It becomes a technical term, uh, not referencing the world in its bigness. We talked about this last week, but actually referencing the world in its badness. Um, so, so he came into the world. And we're meant to, maybe that this is our second reading through John. We read it once and then we catch, oh, he means something when he uses this term. He was in the world 
that, that there's darkness represented in that. The world was created through him. The world did not recognize him. So the world is this created order that hates Jesus in John, in John chapter 7. Uh, the world is the created order that hates Jesus' Jesus's followers in John 15. Uh, in fact, John 16, the world actually rejoices when Jesus' followers weep and mourn. Um, Satan is described as the prince of this world in John chapter 12 and John chapter 14. Uh, so, so world, again, it doesn't point to bigness in John, it points to badness. And so we read this and we see an emphasis that into the badness, Jesus comes. And the world and its rebellion and its contrariness to its creator did not recognize him, is, is, is what our translation says. Maybe your translation says, did not know him. And again, we've got to work some of this out in the introduction. John's loading us up. Knowing in John's gospel becomes a technical term as well. It's a synonym for, for in, in many cases, for faith, for an intimate, uh, trusting knowledge. So, for example, later on in John chapter 6, we'll see this, that, that having faith and knowing are synonyms there in John. So, so Jesus comes into the world that did not know him. It's, it's a reference to more than a mere lack of recognition, but instead what's pictured as Ritterboss, one commentator put it, is a willing refusal to accept or believe in Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus came into. A willing refusal to accept or believe in Him. We, we will not trust in you, Jesus. We will not yield to you as our Maker and our Savior. So the world didn't know Him. And, and, we, and we see this happen around us uh, all the time in one sense. The darkness doesn't want the light. John's going to unpack how this looks when Jesus first came. But even in our own day, uh, we see this. Maybe, maybe we've even been in that place ourselves. Maybe we even are in that place at the moment. Um, to, to speak of Jesus maybe in, in reduced terms can be acceptable on one level. Like, like if we can speak about him as a, as a moral teacher or a spiritual healer, that's okay. But what happens in our world when we speak about Jesus in terms of the first few verses of John? You know, I'd like to speak about the one who is eternal and stands outside of all space and time. I'd like to speak about the one who not only stands outside of all space and time, but he does so as the, as the sovereign creator and master of the universe who actually has creative ownership rights to all things. Right? Creative rights, including defining what is good and evil, defining who I am as a creature he made. What happens when we start speaking about Jesus in these ways? What about Jesus, the definer of our purpose? Jesus, the definer of our identity? Jesus, the master of all destinies and the one who holds absolute authority over every square millimeter and to whom every person will one day give an account and even bow in submission on the final day. How does the world respond in our day to the coming of Jesus? Oh, well, I, I, I know the moral teacher, Jesus, and I know the spiritual guide, Jesus. But I have no interest in, in knowing, right? no interest in believing, no interest in trusting in the Jesus who will return to judge the living and the dead. Right? And what's this business about sin and needing a Savior? No, thank you. In, the, in this Jesus, I have no interest. I willingly, consciously turn away from him. Right? We see that around us. The, the world has a Romans 1 problem. Paul speaks of all humanity knowing God. And yet still being without excuse in our, in our rejection of him. Jesus entered the world in his badness. The world did not know him. They did not turn to him in acceptance and belief. Seeing him as the original source of life. And the only hope of reconciled life with God. There's this rebellious estrangement. 
And it's a weighty thing to consider. It's, it's dark, it's sorrowful, but it is true. And it does explain so much of what we see around us. And the second response that John tells us about isn't any better. In fact, there are even greater levels of sorrow attached to it in, in one sense. If we look at verse 11, where we read that he came to his own and his people did not receive him. Uh, more, more specifically, the language of verse 11 uh, can read, he came to his, his home. Not his own, but his home. Right, that's, that's a translation that many scholars prefer there with the word that's used, which, which is to make a connection between Jesus and the Jewish people. All down through the history of biblical revelation, we know how the Lord had set apart the Israelites as his chosen people, the household of Jacob. Right? It's not because they were particularly meritorious above other people groups. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses makes it clear that it was simply because the Lord had determined to set his love upon Israel that he chose them. That chose them. And he was faithful to the promises that he'd made to them through Abraham. They were uniquely set apart for the Lord. And from the home of Israel, from the household of Israel, Jesus was born. Jesus first came to the people who had these promises of God. He came to the people who'd received the word of God through Moses and the prophets saying that this, prop, this promised son is going to come. The promised king is going to come through Abraham's family line, through David's family line. Jesus came to his home, to his household, but they didn't receive him. In fact, for the first half of John, we'll see how the Jews didn't receive Jesus. For the most part, they, they didn't welcome or embrace the Son of God as their long-promised, prophesied, and hoped-for Messiah. Which, again, is a, is, a, is a dark truth. Jesus weeps over this reality in Luke chapter 14. In fact, Paul, he speaks of this rejection of Christ by the Israelite people as giving him great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart in Romans chapter 9. This is, a, this is a different rejection than the, than the mere general rejection of the world back in chapter 10. Because in a special sense, the people of Israel had the truth. Jesus says as much to them in John chapter 5. You have the scriptures that are testifying to me. You should see me when I come. I'm the one that you've been hoping in through the word of God that you say you esteem so highly. But you're missing who it's pointing to. They reject him. And, and while it is a dark reality... In this, we do find a lesson. In fact, as we study John, we'll see this, that, that uniquely in John's gospel, that the Jews do reject Jesus, but, but so much of the time, they, they do personify the, so much of the world that does have a sense of the truth about Jesus and still decides to go the other direction from him. They're, they're the ones who are in the dark place of turning against Jesus, even though they knew. But there's a sense in which it comes through in John's gospel, so are so many of us. We, we, we can see ourselves in their situation, not least of all those of us who have, have so much opportunity to know about the gospel. You know, it's less and less so today, and especially where we live, but so many have heard about Jesus. They've had the word of life. They know about Christ and Christianity. They choose not to believe. A friend of mine from high school, we've gotten together maybe three times in the past 20 years. Uh, he is the single reason why I made it through high school math class. Is He's a good friend, um, but but he was he was a confessing disciple of Jesus through our high school years. He even, he even was instrumental in bringing another friend of ours to faith in Christ. But in these last years, I mean, about the last five years, for all his knowledge of the truth, he's decided to reject it. So he now trusts in crystals for his spiritual energy. Uh, he believes that uh, that life force comes uh, merely from nature. 
He has all the knowledge, a great deal of, of biblical knowledge, but he chooses actively to reject Jesus. So it's historically sorrowful to consider that the Jewish people largely turn away from Jesus as the Messiah for all their knowledge of the scriptures. It's historically sorrowful, but it's also instructive in a sobering kind of way. I've shared this with you before, but, but in the early 1900s, there was an Anglican priest by the name of Jeffrey Studdart Kennedy. And I like him because he was known to be a very down-to-earth minister. He was a good example of what, what a minister should be like, and part of that comes because during World War I, he was a chaplain. And, and whenever he came to give spiritual help to soldiers who were injured or dying, he would always bring them a Woodbine cigarette to smoke while he offered them spiritual comfort. So he became known as Woodbine Willie uh, among, the, among the troops. Uh, but, but he was far from an aloof minister. In that day, many ministers were aloof and, and felt like they were uh, above others. He was a very down-to-earth minister, uh, in touch with what it meant to be human. And he wrote this poem entitled Indifference. And one stanza goes like this. Uh, it says, when Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. So Kennedy there, in that sense, was making the point that while Jesus came into the world so long ago, and we can look back on his reception with a, with a kind of amazement that the, that the Israelite people, in a sense, missed Jesus like they did and crucified him in that violent kind of way. Uh, Kennedy, he's making the point that, that this is the human condition. He's saying people might, not, uh, might, might, might be modernized in Birmingham, if you like, and not crucify Jesus if he showed up on the scene of history in that city, but, but we'd all leave him to die just the same. So this is the tragic rejection of Jesus by the people he made. And so in the most serious way, humanity largely rejects and rejected Jesus. And then, of course, in a particularly sorrowful way, this is true of the Israelite people who had so much of this truth uh, there for them. Jesus came and he continues to come through the sound of the gospel, calling people to trust in him. And he's and he's rejected. And we know this. We know this not only because of our own past history. I mean, we are born rejectors. But we also know this from the relationships that mean so much to us but have this shroud of sorrow around them. Family members who've had the truth but reject the truth. Friends whom we've tried to share the good news about Jesus with but they seem so indifferent. Rejection is around us and it can seem so discouraging. The maker rejected, the redeemer rejected, the, the reconciler of humanity, the savior of the world, unrecognized. So we get through verse 11, and it seems like maybe John's gospel is going to stop before it even gets started. Um, except, except, of course, we know rejection of Christ isn't the final word. Uh, and, so, and so we continue on into verses 12 and 13. We move from Jesus being unrecognized and not received the, the darkness of that. We, we actually move now into this very joyful category where we see all who did receive him are now going to be described. You've got unrecognized, rejection, now all who did receive him. So by some, Jesus was and will be received. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So we have this final category, not of rejecting Jesus, Christ as being those who believe receiving him. And John speaks here of people receiving Christ as being those who believe in his name. That's important for us to understand, but because later on John's going to tell us his purpose. In fact, in fact, if 
if, if memory serves, I, I believe it's 98 times or something believing is used in John's gospel. And a good solid third of those times is believing in or believing into the name of Jesus. This is going to be a phrase John repeats. Um, for, for, for us, it sounds a little bit odd, believing in the name, right? Uh, of course, names are significant for us. We consider them carefully for our children and so on. But, but in ancient times, names were even more deeply connected to to an expression of hope for the character of a person. So, so in, a, in the ancient world, to speak of a name was connected to the, the personhood of the individual in a much deeper way. And we see this coming into spiritual life as well when we get to places like Psalm 5, when the psalmist speaks of loving God and he says, he loves God's name. I love God's name. We don't talk like that. I love the name of Julia for she is my wife. That just sounds weird, right? We, we don't speak that way. But in the ancient context, name means everything. It means the whole person. So here John's referencing the truth that while many rejected Jesus, others did believe in his name. Now, they didn't believe in one part of Jesus that they found particularly appealing and forget about the rest. No, they believed into who he genuinely is. They believed into his person and work. The name of Jesus, uh, you remember, means the Lord saved. And these are people who gave themselves. In fact, one, one commentator puts it this way, that there's a sense in which the believer is throwing himself upon the Lord in loving, self-abandoning faith and trust. That's, that's what's going on here, believing into the name of Christ. And of course, this response of belief in the name of Jesus, it's rewarded, John says. It's rewarded enormously. To those who believe, to those who are trusting that Jesus really was the one who comes from God, who was promised, who really is the one who comes and takes away our sins. To those who trust in Jesus, Jesus gave them the right to be children of God. Children of God. That, that giving the right language, it speaks of being granted an authorized kind of standing. When we believe in Jesus, he puts us in the authorized and, and advantageous position of becoming a child of God. It's interesting here that John speaks of believers of, as being uh, children of God. In other places in the New Testament, in Paul, for example, we had this in, in the reading of our pardon from Ephesians today. In Paul, for example, uh, he, he will regularly refer to believers as sons of God. Sons of God. In that culture, the son was the one who received the privilege of inheritance. So Paul is making a specific point there in that he's saying whether it's, it's men or women or boys or girls, as we believe in Jesus, we all become sons in the sense that we all now have this gospel inheritance uh, through Christ of eternal life and all the benefits and all of these kinds of things. So in that way, we are all sons, men, women, boys, girls. We're all sons of God in that sense. And of course, we can't fault Paul because later on he'll also say we're all bride, the bride, right? We're all the bride of Christ, and, and he uses that metaphor in a different way. So Paul's purposeful in the way he refers to things there. Uh, but, but here John says that when we believe in Jesus, we're granted the authorized standing of children of God. Paul would use sons to speak about our inheritance. Children, uh, that's to emphasize not so much our inheritance like son does, but what does a child emphasize? Well, it emphasizes acceptance and access, doesn't it? Acceptance and access. Who will always have a place with me? My children will. Who can always get to me? Or they better be able to get to me. Who can always get to me? My children will. Right? Now we approach God through what Jesus has done, knowing that we're not estranged and alienated in sin, but instead we belong to God as His children now. 
So we call him Father, knowing that his desire is for our good and he cares for us perfectly and without ever leaving us. It's a glorious concept to consider, even as this is Father's Day. You know I can't plan my sermon text for the week. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at sticking consistently to a, to a plan. But it's great that we're here on Father's Day, isn't it? Just to think about this. The fact that we are children of God in this unique sense. Our earthly fathers, as wonderful as they can be, or even as destructive as they can be. They are at best, on dad's best day, he's a mere refraction in a sense. He's a, he's a dim glimmer of the glories of true fatherhood found perfectly in God himself. As dads, we should say amen to that. We're, we're, we're dim glimmers, fellas. Right? Right? And our kids even need to hear us say that. There is a perfect father and we're all in need of him. In Christ, all father figures pale in comparison to the fact that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is counted as our perfect protector, perfect provider, sustainer, the one who watches over us, who embraces us in his truth and purposes and never releases us from his personal, special, providential, loyal love and care. So, so whether we had or, or did not have faithful earthly dads, in believing in Jesus, we're granted the position of child of God who wraps us up in his safety and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and unending acceptance and cares for us perfectly. It's an amazing truth that we're children of God. So Sinclair Ferguson, he's speaking about this in one of his books and he makes this comment that, that for all who are trusting in Jesus, he says, Christ is giving us access to the presence of his Father and saying to us, you may now speak to him as I speak to him, with the same right of access, with the same sense of intimacy, and with the same assurance that he loves you. So to all who believed in his name, Christ gave the right to be children of God. This is glorious truth. And so we might find ourselves, as, as believers, for believing today, we might find ourselves saying, well, it, it is sure a good thing I got myself sorted out and started believing. Right? Not like those, those people out there who are rebellious and won't believe, all those who rejected Jesus, they're, they're, they're so wrong. How could, they, how could they be so dim-minded? Look at the extraordinary benefits that are mine in Christ because I believe. I'm so glad I, I, I worked that out. I'm glad uh, that, I, that I've turned my heart around to see Jesus for who he is. And now I'm trusting. And look at these benefits. I'm just so glad I've done so well with that. And John says, now hold on one second. Hold on just one second. You do believe. And it is everybody's responsibility to believe in Jesus, to actively trust in Jesus. We are genuinely responsible and active in our believing. But just don't get too big-headed, John says. And thinking that you've done a mighty fine job of, of, of thinking about this better than so many others around you. No, you believe and Christ grants you extraordinary benefits. But how do you believe? Is it because we have such a special and sophisticated mind? Is it because we're always those up at the top of the class who had everything figured out? Not hardly. Not hardly. So how do we believe? Well, John says in verse 13, uh, it, it's, it's not something that comes from you or because of you or because of others around you that matters. So he says you're not in this wonderfully blessed position because of natural descent. That's what he said for, says first of all. It's not because of your family of origin that you're a believing child of God. The Jews thought that they were secure with God because they were the offspring of Abraham. 
Jesus is going to have to address this later on, and we'll read about that in John. And for us, some of us may be tempted to think we're safely in believing status because we've come from a Christian family after all. I'm a de facto member of the believing group. No, no, John's saying you don't, you don't gain this blessed position of believing and becoming a child of God because of the family you come from. This is not a matter of natural descent, John says. Nor, verse 13, is this a matter of the will of the flesh. Your believing in Jesus is not first rooted even in your own desire and ambition. You're not, you're not the first mover toward faith in Jesus as much as we wish we could boast in that. No, he says. Nor, verse 13, do you believe and gain this standing as a child of God because of the will of man. Your, your believing is not even rooted in the initiative of other people in your life. No, when it comes to understanding ultimate sources, you believe, verse 13, by the will of God. By the will of God. I'm not believing because of my family history. I'm not believing because of my own intuition and resolve. I'm not believing because grandma's going to pray me into heaven. No, I'm believing because the God of the universe has reached down in a total act of undeserved favor and sovereign grace and made my heart that's dead in sin alive to see the glories that are there for me in my lostness as I turn to Jesus Christ and find life. This believing, this faith that is ultimately and, and precedingly a gift from God that makes me new and turns me toward trusting. And, and we'll, we'll discuss this at great length with our friend Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That This is just the introduction, remember? It leaves us thinking we need to work this out further, which is exactly what John wants us to think. He's just, he's just getting us ready for some of these things. It's the anticipatory set, if you like. But to see the kingdom of God, to trust in Jesus, I must be born again by the work of the Spirit of God alone. Without that, I'm dead in sin. Sin's grip on me is too strong. Dead people don't get up off the table at the county morgue and start doing live people stuff. My rebellious heart's too hard. I'm too lost. I must be regenerated. I must be born again, like Jesus is going to say, by the Spirit of God. So first and foremost, I believe not by my will, not by your will, not by any other will, but by God's will. So Wesley can write the lyrics, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. What a description of our lost status as humanity. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. And then he says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Right? Not born of natural descent, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but born again by the will of God. Are you, are you believing in Jesus by the will of God? I'll tell you one way you can know. You want to respond to Jesus coming by believing. You want to. I feel the weakness of my, own, of my own belief. Don't you feel that? I feel the folly of my own heart. But I also know that me turning and trusting is not based on the strength I can conjure up, but on the grace that God gives to continue and persevere and resting in the, in the, in the gift of faith that he gives to me. And so we have that here in this responding to the coming of Jesus. On the one hand, there's a failure to recognize Jesus. That's one response. There's also this, this rejection of Jesus. He came to his home and they rejected him. right? And then there's believing. There's believing. And so we find ourselves just praying, Oh God Almighty, may we all be believing in Jesus. 
May we all keep believing in Jesus. May you bring us and many, many others into your family. There's this poem. It's anonymous. At least I don't, th I don't think the author is known, but, but it goes like this. You've got to listen to how he places things here. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. You hear how he said that? I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. That's what John can say to us. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Of God. We thank God for the gift of believing. Let's pray. So, Father, we do come before you as the one who provides for us perfectly. And we know you provide for us most significantly in the fact that you give us the gift of faith. We know it's a gift so that no one may boast. Uh, we may not boast in our believing, but we may rest in your kind provision for us. And we pray, even as we consider these things this morning, that you would give us a sense of peace uh, around your love for us and the significance of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. May we be people longing to believe, longing to trust, longing to know you, Lord. And then may those around us uh, who, we, who we meet, who we see, who we love, who we interact with on a regular basis, Lord, may you grant them hearts that long to believe. And may you use us as the ambassadors for Christ, as we're called to be, to witness to the extraordinary truth that's found in him. Uh, use us to this end. Keep us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.